This is Cup of Go for December 8, 2023. Keep up to date with the important happenings in the Go community in 15 minutes per week. I'm Jonathan Hall. And I'm Shai Nechmad. Happy Hanukkah, everyone. Happy Hanukkah. So I propose we get to some news. Sounds like a plan. Before we jump into proposals, we already gave a hint last week that we were going to be talking about a new release this week. Do you want to do that? Yeah, so it is a security release. Uh, we had some bets on where are the security problems. You said the network, HTTP, you were correct. But there's a whole bunch of stuff. So first of all, if you haven't updated yet, update. It's easy process uh, with Go. And this release includes three security fixes. Uh, and I want to focus on just one of them. They're all interesting. And you can go read like the issue now that it's you know open. One of the vulnerabilities fixed was actually a regression, uh, which is interesting. So for a previous security fix, we changed uh, volume names for Windows. And there's a really weird looking path here where you have the UNC leading, which is like slash slash question mark slash C uh, colon slash. I don't know if people can visualize that, but it looks like a super shitty Windows path. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was cleaned incorrectly where you ended up with the drive without the slash at the end. So the previous behavior has been restored. If you're one of the one people who were affected by this super specific edge case, you can upgrade instead of downgrade uh, from the latest version. There's also a fix to CMD Go, which falls back to the old like Git protocol instead of Git SSH, and something with NetHTTP security as well. Everything a bit edge casey and you know unused, nothing major and like super major CV, just uh, normal fixes. Go team taking care of our security. So that's nice, and go upgrade. So I'm, I'm really curious, you mentioned that, that, that one or two users using Windows. What makes you think there's only one or two people using Windows? Well, I got the numbers. Oh. I got the numbers to back it up. First of all, I've been using Windows. I just got back to military service where I use Windows. So I'm one of them, and okay. it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really happy to be back on my MacBook right now. Not, hashtag not sponsored. <laughs> I just I can't fix, you know, CF, CRLF and and slashes backslashes anymore. Yeah. Um but yeah, uh we have numbers from the Go Developer Survey, Yay. which I hope listeners of the show filled out when it came out and now we have the responses. Uh you've been digging through it. What's the verdict? Is Go better than Rust? Yeah, I think the most important verdict from this survey is that Linux is the majority. So you have to stop making fun of me every time I mention I use Linux. 63% <laughs> of developers use Linux and another 16%, well, I shouldn't say another 16, but 16% as well, that might be an overlap, use WSL. So Linux is clear majority. Yeah, yeah. Of people who say which operating system they use. <laughs> yeah, there's a non-disclosed segment that was eliminated from the from the numbers. So there's a whole bunch of uh, interesting uh, responses and breakdowns and charts, and you can go dig through it. But like, there are a few interesting things here. The one I found interesting was error handling, right? Because that's usually the first thing people gripe at when they see GoCo. It's like, oh, why do we have error chain not like nil all over the place? Why don't we have exceptions? We, we want exceptions like we have in our current language. Turns out, you know, when people answer and almost uh, 3,200 people answer, uh, you get a bit of a different sentiment. I really like the breakdowns. They do it on that question and others where they break it down by years of experience with Go. And, and you, you see the expected trend that more experienced people answer the way you would expect. But I think it's really valuable to do that and not just assume that every Go developer is part of this homogenous whole, that you know, there are different skill levels and, and interest levels. Yeah, the, the breakdown by years of experience really shows you the different experience people have when they are less experienced 
for example, uh, you know, uh, go error messages, uh, you have uh, like the following options. I understood the problem. I knew how to fix it without any assistance. I saw it in the past. Or then it goes down to like slightly less uh, fun experiences if you got an error message, which is like, I mostly know how to fix it, but I need to find an example. Goes down to, I didn't understand what it meant at all. First of all, you see that most people are happy with the error messages and they understand them and everything's fine. But you also see that for zero to two years of experience, the first time they, you know, go over in numbers or I guess in uh, percentage over the more experienced developers is I mostly knew how to fix the problem, but I needed to find an example or a specific syntax. That's a place where, you know, comparing to, you know, really strong linters I've used in the past, for example, a rough uh, linter for Python, which I'm using right now. It has a minus minus verbose mode, like highlights the the part of the code that's wrong and suggests a fix. They like they really give you an example and it's very verbose. It's really annoying when you do it for the thousandth time because you just you see the error code and you're like, oh, I understand. I forgot to put like returns none at the end. Thanks. Yeah, like yeah. I don't need the example. But for the first time you see a, an error or a warning, putting this example and highlighting the specific lines of code in the same way you would see with the rough linter or the same way you would see with you know, the Rust compiler hints, which are like uber verbose, I think could be useful. And, and that's one of the things they highlight here in the in the survey, that they want to improve the tool train error messages because it seems like it's a frustration area, but you have to do it delicately. For the newbies, you want to give super verbose and examples and links. And for people who are more experienced, if they, you know, if they already know how to fix it and they saw it before, just stay out of the way or even suggest auto fixes in the way you do it. And this is just drilling down to one of them, right? There's a whole bunch of quotes here and, and interesting questions. Do you work on microservices? What other languages uh, do you use? By the way, that was interesting. If you have other uh, languages in your backend, microservice, mesh, whatever, what languages do you use? Number one was obviously Python, but at least to my chagrin, number two was Node.js. I, I was really sad to see that so high up the list. The JavaScript on the backend is live, folks. Yeah. It's not the way. <laughs> it is not the way to go. But I guess, you know, we're talking to the gophers, so we're sort of preaching to the choir. Exactly. 26% uh, still say they only use Go, though. So that's a respectable showing. It is. Single stack uh, microservice backends. I don't know. At some point, you end up, uh, you know, having to do some micro, like uh, machine learning jobs. So you have to bring in pandas and, and, and all the Python libraries. Or at some point, you have some of the front end team developing their own small backend service just because they want to solve something quick. I've always seen these uh, architectures grow to polyglot uh, stuff. I would really like to see this chart uh, broken down by number of microservices or, or number of employees at the company. Because I suspect, as you alluded to, that as the company gets larger, you're more likely to have other languages in the mix. And Python is an obvious example if you're doing anything with ML. Yeah. But if you're a small company, you know, I've worked for a number of startups that did only go microservices because they were just small and they hadn't gotten to the point yet where they needed something that was where Python or Ruby or whatever was, was specifically tailored for that problem. I think that there's an even more interesting breakdown is by uh, revenue, but I don't know if people will be <laughs> willing to share that. Yeah. And one last thing I really liked seeing is how long have you used Go? The plus 10 years uh, part is 5%, which mm -hmm. I was super surprised by. I imagined like maybe three people 
are used Go and still use Go, but it seems like it's very sticky. Also seems like, which I think does show in the documentation and the sort of stuff we talk about in the show and the sort of stuff you see around Slack, the community itself is pretty mature. Most of the developers have been working with Go for more than three years, which is, I can't say I feel the same about people who I work with who work in Python, for example. Most of them, first year university or maybe haven't been doing it professionally for too long because they just use it for uh, data science stuff and stuff like that, even though it's been around for longer. How long have you been using Go, Shai? Uh, since 2015. 2015. By the yeah. same time I started, yeah. So we're both in that five to nine year bucket. So give us a couple of years and we'll be in that 10 year bucket. If we make it. <laughs> if we make it. <laughs> anyway, so this is a super interesting uh, survey. We, we can't go through all the topics in it, obviously. But just read it, take a look at the at the closing words. And the last one, obviously, is they, they closed, it, closed it out real nicely. If you remember, you, we filled it out quite a long time ago, like six months, something like that. But there's anything else you would you like to share, right? That's the last question. Is there anything else you just want to share? And the top one uh, response there, which was like an open-ended text response, was just general thanks, praise, I like it. Just a general positive message. Uh, people in the community are less of a complainer type, more of a appreciative type, which is nice. Uh, I assume the survey didn't make it to Reddit. You know what I mean? And the, se- yeah. <laughs> and the second most popular answer there was other. So Yeah, for sure. There are only 400 people who actually got to that part of the yeah. survey as well. So maybe our attention span as a Gopher community is getting kind of low. Pretty much as the people are listening to us reading the entire survey. So let's jump on proposals. What do you say? Yes, let's do it. Proposals. An update on one that we've mentioned in the past is the uh, addition of the dead code command. It has been accepted. It has been around for a while, but in an unofficial capacity hidden under the internal directory, it will be promoted to full status. Even though you used it, right? I use it. I use it daily, actually. Yes, I have it in my CI pipelines. I'm hopeful that it will be added to Golang CI Lint, so I don't have to have a separate stage in my CI pipeline, but I use it all the time. Now that it's accepted, why don't we just add it? To if any of our listeners feel like adding a linter to the Golang CI Lint, it's open source, right? It's not like an official thing. And it's easy. There's instructions on how to do it. I even have a video on my YouTube channel about how how to create a linter, so... So I wouldn't say it's easy, but I would say it's a simple addition uh, if you want to try it out. Although, obviously, whenever it comes to linter and ASCs and trying to parse everything, and I know. I assume it's more than just running dead code. And, and well, as they say, we as programmers don't do things because they're easy, but because we thought they were going to be easy. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that one. That's good. Um, another proposal which I found positive, I would say, I have positive feeling towards, is a proposal for the Go tool chain to add language localization support to GoDoc. So GoDoc is really nice, right? You don't have to maintain separate files. You just plop them in. It's standardized. So there isn't the Python thing where you have a Google style and Sphinx style documentation. You have to pick a style. Go picked out the style for you. Don't need to think about it. But what happened is that Go went global. It started in the default country, America, but it is actually a global uh, thing. You know, in the same way that uh, domain names, right, all across the world, you have country TLDs, and then for the default country, it's .com, and almost nobody uses .us. English is the default language for Go documentation, but what happens if, you know, the dev team is, let's say, they only speak Chinese or they only speak Russian. So this proposal is all about localization support for documentation. 
And there's already existing stuff. There's Golang China, Golang Doc, and there's a whole lot of different options you can work with. And this proposal is currently active, which is a bit surprising because it was added a long time ago. And I'm not sure why uh, we picked it up right now, but Russ picked it up just right now. I don't know why it came up. And one thing that I thought was interesting in is, uh, you know, the fact that it's now active, he's looking for LLMs to be the answer, right? He's like, oh, if LLMs are good for anything, it should be translation. Maybe we should do a third party tool that translate output to the new language dynamically and stuff like that. So it's not very clear how to resolve this. And there's a whole bunch of different edge cases, but I'm really hoping, you know, we, we put our head down and we actually figured this one out because, you know, opening the language to people who don't speak English or want to document the original project in their native language and then have it translated to English for them can just help, you know, a lot of uh, accessing a lot of developer goodness that's uh, foreign to where you're sitting at right now. Yeah, I, I agree that I, I would love to see something like this happen, but I can't imagine what the technical solution looks like, except for LLMs, which is sub standard in some ways, you know, it's not going to be perfect and certain technical words will not be translated correctly. I would love to see better internationalization support, but I don't know what it would look like. Like I, I can't imagine reading a Go, a .go file that has 16 languages you know, for every doc. So if your IDE would hide the, you know, just hide the, not the language you're using, that would work fine. That's how it works in apps you download, right? You download a site, you say what the language you want to see, and your browser just shows that language for you. I know, I often look at blogs and then Google Chrome is like, hey, do you want to translate this to Hebrew? And I'm like, no, thank you. But uh, when my dad uses the computer on my mom and they click on it because they open an English site and want to read it in Hebrew, it works fine. The only problem is that I feel like technical documentation should be exact and LLMs are nothing if not. And that's my concern with LLMs uh, is that it could it could lose some of that exactness in some cases. Yeah, I, just an example I ran into this week. I used uh, the regexp package. I'm sorry. And it has a, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I used it and then I had to stop using it because it didn't work because in the documentation, somewhere in the middle of the page, it says find all, finds all the matches of the regular expression that are non-overlapping. And I just read it and the first time I, I did like none and over, they cancel each other out. So it's slapping and it works uh, and it's going to work. And then obviously it didn't work. Um, spoiler for anyone who's doing advent of code, but it's just like day one, question one. So don't worry about it too much. Um, and I couldn't use it. And it's just because I haven't read the documentation clearly enough. Yeah. I can't imagine that the machine translation of that documentation would have done me any good. Yeah. Uh, so it's an interesting proposal. It's a really hard one. Uh, I hope we can figure it out. And we have one more on the docket that we want to review about compile time overrides. That sounds hardcore. What's going on? So you may already be familiar with the, da, the minus capital X compile flag that you can set uh, a variable value at compile time. This mm -hmm. is frequently used for like setting the build time or the git SHA or, or whatever, you know, different things like that. It could be various things like that. The proposal is to add similar capabilities for constants. The benefit would be that you could do dead code elimination much more effectively if you have, say, some flag that says enable feature X 
instead of feature Y, or enable variant blue, pink, or red, you could pick whichever variant you want of some feature, then it could do DCE on branches that will never be executed. I think it makes sense intuitively. Uh, I'm not sure technically how it would work because the existing minus X flag happens after compilation. I believe it's a linker flag, happens at linking time. So this would have to happen at a stage earlier, but it, it makes intuitive sense to me. The, the only problem I have with it from a usability standpoint is I would have to be much more careful when I see constants that say things like, enable foo const enable foo equals true right now i can just refactor that out i figure oh that's left over from debugging or something it's not if it hasn't been changed in the last six months i can probably refactor that out i would have to be much more careful about that in the future so i don't like this proposal uh and i actually hope it doesn't uh go through because you have a way to do it already um well, depends on what you actually want to achieve. So if you want feature flags and that's the capability you're looking for, then I don't think compiler flags are the way you want to go because you want to manage it centrally and you want to know that you're actually using it and you might want to change it at runtime and not at compile time. And if you want it for code and elimination, you can use go build and just pick the file you want, like slash slash go build comments. And use that for that. So it feels like a tool that's not super good at doing anything, but it is a huge foot gun because obviously someone will learn about it and misuse it to define all their constants instead of like yeah. 12 factor app configuration. Like let's put stuff in environment variables and in, in or helm charts or whatever in places where it's easier to configure in real applications. So I don't like it. I voted it down. It is interesting though. So but it's one of the few proposals where I look at and and I I don't like it. Most proposals I like. Most proposals yeah. I'm positive about, even if they're hard. This one just feels like it brings me back to the C++ days of, of <laughs> compiler macros and templates and all these sort of very clever things to solve already solved uh, problems. So do you want to place a bet on whether it's going to be accepted or not? So I suggested, the, I proposed the thing and it was yeah. uh, shot down. So I'm not the person to <laughs> place these bets, if you remember. I suspect it will not be accepted. I mean, if you look at the up and down votes, they're evenly split. There are some technical reasons not to do it. I suspect it won't happen, but we'll see. We'll see what happens here. Maybe if the result of this is better documentation, like an example blog post or go by example on how to use go build the tags to achieve what the original poster really wanted. That's a great outcome for everybody involved. Uh, and just to uh, super clarify, uh, Enrico Weigelt, who put the original proposal, you rock, man. This is good work. I just don't like uh, specifically what you put up. But, but, but you're, you're all right. You're all right. <laughs> you're right in my book. <laughs> I think that rounds us out for the news for this week. Uh, stick around for the ad break. We do have some programming notes to share with you about the upcoming episodes for the rest of the year. So stick around for that. And this interesting interview with a former uh, colleague of mine, Miki. Yay. Awesome. See you next week. This episode of Cup of Go is sponsored by Fractional Gopher Services. What is Fractional Gopher Services, you ask? Well, if you like bugless-oriented programming, if you want world-class Go development subscription, if you like walrus-looking people developing your Go... <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> um, and if you have production, just any production, apparently you're running this person's code already. This uh, episode is sponsored by John. Hey, it's me. <laughs> uh, so John has a really productive I would say, and really uh, sustainable subscription service, boldlygo.tech slash subscription, where John can help you if you have Go development in your company. 
such as companies that trust uh, John's work, like Canonical, Unity, Deliveroo, Booking.com, and Teamwork. You need an expert Go developer. John provides it directly to your uh, code pretty quickly, pretty high quality, and with a fixed rate, so no surprises there. Some people who worked with this particular gopher say that working with a Go expert like Jonathan has been extremely useful and pleasant, which I can attest to uh, as well. So go check out the subscription plans. And if your company has Go, which probably applies to many of uh, people in the audience, and you have a project that just needs a bit of a boost, go to boldlygo.tech slash subscription, link it in the show notes as well, and get started. Awesome. Thanks for that shout out. That was really advertising e. It was. Yeah, I feel. I feel, I feel like. Has this ever happened to you? <laughs> <laughs> Order now, and you'll get a pair of steak knives. <laughs> Speaking of, um, speaking of things you can order now, we have shirts available. Ooh, that was nice. That was nice. Again, thanks to y'all for uh, contributing in the Cup of Go Slack channel. Hashtag Cup of Go Kebab Case in the Go for Slack. We have shirts. Thanks to Frederick Averpil. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Who just asked for some apparel. Uh, so we have both a shirt, uh, like a short sleeve V-neck uh, t-shirt with the Brewster logo on it, and a hoodie, which looks very comfortable. We haven't got our samples yet, but should be all right. I, I expect to be sleeping in that thing soon. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it could be sleepwear, it could be sportswear, it could be eveningwear. It depends on your standards for everything, I guess. <laughs> or it could be all of the above. <laughs> yeah, at the same time. Uh, if the dinner is boring enough, you know what I mean? So we have shirts now. And until the end of the year, merch is 14% off with the coupon code HAPPYBDAY14 because it's GOAT uh, 14th year of existence. So be sure to jump on that. Uh, and if not, it's fine. <laughs> uh, you can still get the mugs. You can still get the sticker. And we're still waiting for the first uh, victim to pick up the wireless charger and let us know if it works or not because no one is including ourselves. Oh, I just got a uh, brand new phone. I should it. see if it would work with that. Maybe I'll be the victim. Ooh, I don't have, I have a magnet on the back of mine, so it won't work. So we have shirts and we have the coupon code, Happy B Day 14, all capital letters, uh, other than the number, which is digits. <laughs> yeah. Just copy it from the show notes. If you want to reach us, you can reach us at news at kapago.dev. That is news at kapago.dev. The Slack channel, as I mentioned, uh, or just go to kapago.dev uh, where you can find all the episodes, everybody who was on the show, all the show notes, links to the store, general happiness in life, maybe. Depends on what you're looking for. Talking about happiness in life, Jonathan and I want to take some time off. That's right. Uh, it's the end of the year. Uh, if you celebrate uh, Christmas, that's relevant for you. Uh, I celebrate Novigod. Generally, it's a busy time for most people, uh, including you and including ourselves. So we will take some time off for the end of the year. We're still planning to do next week. The 15th. But yeah, the, the 15th is going to have an episode. But the 22nd and 29th, I'm deleting off our calendars right now. Because we want to take some time off and, and, and chill. I guess if it's relevant to you celebrate Christmas, if it's relevant for you celebrate Novigod or any other end of year. Or activities. just celebrating a week off from the news and, and doing Advent of Code or whatever you're doing. It's fine. Yeah, totally. We, we're giving you time to do Advent of Code. That's a nice <laughs> spin on it. Uh, we should be back if everything works well uh, January 5th uh, next year. And by the way, thundering towards our one year uh, anniversary yes, of the show. Getting close. 
starting season two, I guess. I suppose so. We'll need some new stumper questions for our interviewees. <laughs> yeah. So that's it for the programming notes. Uh, let us know what you think. Order some shirts. Uh, and stick around for an interview with Mickey. All right. See you next week. Bye, everyone. Hey, guys. Hey. Hello. What should we talk about today? What? What? <laughs> hey, Mickey. What up? I missed that joke. Oh, so come back. I didn't get the joke. No, I, I, I know what it is. <laughs> but the, the joke is about repeating the uh, question word yeah, yeah. whenever asked, no matter what question. Okay. It's going to make this uh, interview very difficult. <laughs> I just wanted to prepare you ahead of time. The listeners don't see Jonathan, but his face is like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Mickey, right. tell us about yourself. What do you do? Do you use Go? Why do you use Go? Why? Is that the repeating question? The repeating word now? <laughs> so uh, I'm, um, I'm a senior developer in uh, Rico, Shai's former startup he worked in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shai was my direct manager. Ooh. I, I don't miss him that much. And you're still on speaking terms. What does it mean? You still speak to each other. If we have to. Well, Just to... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, under, you know. under duress. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Only if his wife doesn't see us together. So, oh. so yeah. Um, I, I actually started developing in Go because of Shai. Shai mostly you know, brought Go into the company. Uh, before that, I was primarily developing in Python, Java, C, C++. And in the company, we have Python services, not services, but Python applications. We have Scala applications, speaking about Java. Um, and we have Go. Go mostly in our company is used to develop backend services. And we have, you can say, roughly two major services that are used for d- data-driven uh, applications, meaning for ETL, classic ETL. And I have mixed feelings about <laughs> those applications being in Go. Um, we, way back when we started, uh, we just chose Go because that's what we knew. Um, you know, Gal, uh, the other co-founder, and Tal and, and myself, the, the first employee, we knew it was a pretty good language. We chose it. And then uh, when, like, Miki came on and we started talking about, okay, let's do data engineering and all the, those uh, curse words, uh, we had a lot of uh, thoughts about whether to do it in Go or not. Mm-hmm. We sort of chickened out and, and went with a polyglot option. But there is some data, like ETL pipelines still in Go, right? Uh, right, but, but they're still in Go because we started with Go and, and we had the sunk cost of like, okay, this is the system got so uh, polished and we had so much time put in it. Uh, and there is no point of switching to another thing. And another reason, actually, that one might argue that Go is good, at least in our case, for some of the data applications, is because we are heavily invested in Protobuf. Meaning that Protobuf is from the beginning of our data pipeline until the, the UI. Every piece of data in our pipeline is somehow wrapped in Protobuf. And using Protobuf in languages other than Go, it works, but not as good. Mm-hmm. So the... the... I guess the question that comes to mind is why why do you feel like Go is not good for uh, you know data intensive uh, workflows? Yeah, my question too, exactly. So my biggest pain right now 
Well, you talked about in your one one of your episodes about Bentos, an app that you know you can connect one source to the sync and then do some manipulations on the go. And huh, this is what I did there. <laughs> and you know, uh, configure pipelines using just YAML files or whatever. Um, and Shai mentioned that we sort of implemented something very, very, very similar, but it lacked one feature that I don't see them implementing. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I didn't see it. Last time I checked their documentation, they do not support something that called multi-schema topics. For example, we, we use Kafka, so I'll, I'll speak in, in that terms. Um, we put a lot of emphasis on single topics with multiple schemas in it, and we implemented by using the one-off feature of, of Protobuf. Why did we do that? Um, we have why good one, good one. We do that because we have lots of different messages that are essentially should be in the same topic, but, you know, they have like five uh, mutual fields, like, I don't know, timestamp, ID, you know, source, whatever. And then one record would have, I don't know, name and surname, and the other record would have, uh, I don't know, score. But essentially, their scale one by one is not that big, so it's too much to, like, you know, create a, a separate topic for each of those records, but together they they scale up very good. So, and it's, all, it's also from a maintenance point, we only need to uh, manage one topic per large subject. So, so you group them uh, logically, even though if uh, they might yeah. have some differences. Yeah, 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 we group them logically and then we then multiplex and demultiplex in each step in the pipeline according to that uh, type of message. Um, and then we had our flavor of Benthos, in-house flavor, that uh, we had to implement this, you know, split Go. And this is the most painful part. Why? Because Go plus Protobuf doesn't have good features of reflection, unfortunately. Because we, if we had, and I'm speaking like knowing Scala, for example, because we do the exact same thing with Scala and Protobuf, <clears throat> Scala has a very good framework around, around reflection with all its features using implicit functions. In Scala, it's, it's enough just to declare a class that implements some, some interface and uh, declare it that it is implicit. And, and the JVM would know, oh, I know that type of record. I know that I have a function that knows how to read it. So I'll just call it. I don't have, for example, in Go to explicitly and for every type of new record we add to like add, I don't know, 10 different files and different functions that uh, you know that if there is a protobuf from that type, call that function and then parse it like that. It's a very tedious process. So I guess the question is, obviously Go has pros and cons. It fits for specific cases and doesn't really fit for others. Knowing all what you know now, if you could go back to the first line of uh, developing this uh, architecture, would you architect it differently to fit around Go? Or would you just pick a different language and stick with the architecture you have? Uh, specifically for the Bentos flavor and specifically for the multi-schema constraint that we have in-house, I think Go is not the answer. Uh, I tend to think that Scala or maybe in the broader sense, even using Spark is the natural solution for that. Also, with everything that data-related that you want to auto-scale, we can use Go for that, but Scala plus Spark is specifically made for that purpose. So it would be very logical to use that for that. Yeah. Um, 
On the other side, I do have some points for Go for data development, and that is for extractions because... For like the E part of the ETL? Yes, exactly. In the E part of the ETL, we don't have multiple schemas. What we do is we query lots of different SDKs, like, for example, I don't know, Microsoft, Slack, Google, and most of them reply with a JSON. And we do not um, care at this part what the actual JSON is. We do not care if it's correct. We do not care uh, about its schema. All the uh, E part of the ETL is responsible for is just to extract. I request what I need and I pass on the data. The, the T and the L would have to you know, break their head about, oh, is that JSON from this source? Okay, so I parse it like that. And for that purpose, we have a single schema. We have lots of HTTP or, I don't know, net, network intensive task that also is constrained by the SDKs with uh, quotas, rate limit, and whatever, and lots of parallelization that I do not control. And Go is the perfect fit for that. I, we utilize channels and Go routines like to the max at this point. Cool. So, so useful for some parts and not, not others. That, that's your verdict. Yeah. That's the, the, such a senior uh, answer. Oh, it depends. Depends on the context. Sorry. Too soon? <laughs> well, let's talk about, let's change su- subjects slightly. Uh, you recently, uh, I understand, shared a list of some of your favorite podcasts. And somehow, magically, this one accidentally landed on that list. Uh, would you be interested in walking us through your top five or six podcasts on your list and, and how this one got on that list? Uh, let's see. Let's see. I send this picture to Shai. It's uh, the uh, Spotify Wrapped. Uh, so the first, the first four are simply podcasts by news companies in Israel. Okay. Um, the first one is purely news. They have a daily twenty-minute episode that I, you know, when I walk the dog, so I, I just listen to it. And the second one is also by the uh, another news company, but it's more um, financial one. Okay. It's a financial for dummies. The other one is the uh, competitor of the first one. So it's basically the same, but just, you know, another point of view. And the fourth is the also sort of a news one, but they um, do deep interviews with certain individuals who work in the government, whether are uh, selected ones or, you know, government employees. And the fifth one is also a news one. They, I don't know, they speak about Go or something like that. Strange. Yeah. So how do you listen to your podcast? Are you in the car? Are you uh, sitting there doing yoga? How, how do you listen to your podcast? Well, I listen to my podcast only if I'm alone in my car, because if I'm with somebody, usually they do not tend to listen with me or somebody's on the phone or I'm speaking with someone. So yep, in the car yep. with other person is not always works. Um, so I usually uh, listen to my podcast when I'm in the gym. Try listening to music in the gym, but it, I don't know. Music doesn't have this uh, attention continuity because when I listen to podcasts, podcasts are, you know, are edited in in a specific way so that almost every second is, you know, has good information. So I'm not thinking about the pain in my muscles. (laughs) Podcasts tend to be uh, information dense. But uh, if you skip like uh, five seconds of the conversation because it's spaced out. You don't. You still can like follow the thread of uh, of, of logic they were talking. Sorry, about. what were you saying? Shy, I spaced out for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, 
Well, well I'm glad that uh, this show made it on, on your list. I, I hope you continue to enjoy listening to it. It's nice to hear that you listen uh, when you're on the go. Where's the um, nice <laughs> As you know, we like to round out our interviews with two stumper questions. Uh, Shahid, do you want to hit him with the first one? If you were forced to, let's say, coerced by your former uh, boss to oh, no. remove one feature from Go, what would you remove and why? can be a language feature, a library you don't like, this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, Go, Go is a very thin language as it is. I would remove the panic, you know? Interesting. You would remove panics? Yes. That's interesting. They're not very informative. All the time that we have panics, I, I, we, we struggle a lot to understand where it comes from. Even when we log almost every line during the debug process, it's not very informative. I know like, we, we, you need some kind of a crash mechanism in a programming language, but I don't know. The panic is not a very good, in my opinion, in the implementation. And also the try-catch mechanism of panics are weird. You have to call another function that calls recover like why not try catch it's interesting that you say that you ha- you haven't listened to the episode yet but the, in our news roundup today we reviewed the go developer survey uh, where a lot of people share your sentiment where they don't really enjoy a go's error tool chain they think it yeah. could be improved yeah um one thing we covered on the uh, on the show recently ish but we really went over it really quickly is uh, someone shared a video on YouTube where they're like debug core dumps. After a panic happens, they have like this tool that they run on the command line and they start debugging the core dump. Looks like it can be used, but I totally agree with you. It's not great. And obviously the flip side of that question, you mentioned a ton of languages you have experience in. If you could uh, steal something from one of those languages and bring it to Go, what would it be? Reflection. Or better reflection. Better reflection slash... Implicit functions. And for our listeners, for our listeners who don't know, obviously myself, I do know, obviously, but what is implicit functions? Uh, As I mentioned before, in very simplistic explanation about implicit, uh, (laughs) as the name suggests, you declare a function, uh, you just, you know, add the word implicit to it, um, you register uh, somewhere else that. Um, one variable or object should be treated by implicit functions. And then the JVM takes on itself to, at runtime, decide which of the implicit functions you, you declared fits to use that uh, variable. So like dynamically dispatching the, the data you want to the function, to the f- implicit function you need. Yeah, instead of, you know, um, declaring the function beforehand in, a, I don't know, a map, and then an object, and then you know, run over that map, given an object, and then decide which function to use. Cool. Interesting. Good answers. Well, thanks for coming on, Mickey, and uh, sharing your perspective. Uh, I think that a lot of people will find that they agree with your perspective that Go isn't the ideal tool for some data work. Um, I imagine some people will disagree. I'd love to hear both sides of that on our Slack channel. If uh, you happen to fall into either camp, come join us. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna get the people riled up for sure. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks again, Mickey, for coming on. Tell us again where you work uh, and and how people can can follow your your workplace or if you like to be followed yourself on social media, anything like that. Um, I work at Rico AI or Rico.ai. You can uh, follow us on LinkedIn. You can uh, search us on Google. It's R E C O. dot AI. Um, follow us. Cool. 
Thanks again, Mickey. Thanks, Mickey. Thanks for having me. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.